0: Our passage today is Romans sixteen, seventeen through 20. Final instructions and greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. We have a few sermons left in Romans. This is the... And the official term maybe would be the Pin Ultimates sermon in Romans. We have one more next week, so continue to dive into Romans with us. We just sang some songs that have some echoes of an ancient garden where there's a, a serpent slithering around and we sang about this, this dragon that needs to be driven from his seat. We need to sing those kinds of songs. Hopefully we feel the sense that the, the, what has happened in the garden, there's some echoes happening now, both good and Bad, hard, and right, and the church, the people of God need to understand and be aware of these things, that the the garden unleashed two seeds that were promised into the earth. There would be the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and they would be at constant enmity with one another. And that enmity continues so that the church, those who are uh, the seed of the woman, they are the ones who are in Christ, who came from uh, the woman, the one that was promised in Genesis. Those who are in Christ, they're under constant threat from the seed of the serpent. And what Paul has done all through the book of Romans, whether we knew it or not, whether he explicitly stated it or not, is prepare us and equip us and get us ready to be those who are constantly and animosity with the seed of the serpent. As he finishes the letter to the Romans, he he gives a few more, maybe more direct words into this battle and what we'll need in the midst of that fray, what we'll need to be aware of and to know, but it's not as if all that he said so far doesn't come to bear here. And so as Paul kind of lays out some of his final instructions and brings this letter to a close, he wants to warn this church, he wants to warn Christians, and he also wants to bless them. And so he gives a few exhortations, a few encouragements, and a few expectations for them to keep on their radar. There's a familiar start to verse 17. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. Similar to what we saw in chapter 12, verse 1, I'm appealing to you, very similar to that. Almost identical, the exact same, at least for a few words, from chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So in other words, he's again bringing some strong urging. These words that are going to follow are not throwaway words because we're in our final instructions. That's what he's saying here, like, listen up here. And what does he say? What does he appeal to? Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. On each side of this verse there's these ex or sorry these exhortations that bookend it. Watch out's on one side and avoid is on the other side. Watch out. He starts with uh, Be on the lookout for. You might remember there's this great character in the Harry Potter series, Mad-Eye Moody. He's a gr- old veteran who uh, has been through a lot of stuff in his life. He has a lot of scars. He's missing an eye, so he has a mechanical one, and he's been seen a lot of dark arts and faced a lot of battles, and his saying that he gives all the time is constant vigilance. Like He's been there. He knows the battle, and so he says, constant vigilance. Vigilance and, and Paul is is a lot like Moody in a sense. He's like he's a grizzled veteran. He's seen some stuff. He's been around, and, and he says in the midst of that to the Christians that he writes to, you need to be constantly vigilant. Watch out. Now, when he talks to the the Romans, the saints who are in Rome, he he, he doesn't necessarily say that you're particularly susceptible to this. So that you need to watch out. I think more likely what is happening, he knows that there is an ever-present threat to the church, to Christians. And because that is true, he warns them, watch out. But Paul certainly knows this in his own life. He likely writes this letter from Corinth. And what's Corinth? But it's a mess of a church. And one of the problems at Corinth was their divisions. They're, they're they're moving into different sects, and they're 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 fighting against one another. He hears of disturbances going on in Galatia. He has problems in in Philippi. A few people are there. He hears of what's going on, wolves among the elders at Ephesus. All these could be brought to bear when he warns them to watch out. And there, there's not a ton of things that Paul gets fired up about in his writing. Here's one thing that he gets fired up about a bunch, and it is division. The false doctrine, he gets fired up about that, and division. There's some other things he's like, e- eat or not eat, we're okay, but don't divide. Right? He, he gets fired up about division And those who create obstacles to right doctrine. That's certainly from his experience. He's seen how it's disintegrated the church. But it's also a reflection of the very heart and posture of God towards these things. In in Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things the Lord hates. One of them are are seeds that are sown of discord. The same word that Paul uses here for divisions was used in chapter 5 verse 20 of Galatians. Where he's talking about works of the flesh. One of the works of the flesh is those dissensions. Divisions. And Paul gets fired up about it because he's reflecting what God thinks of this. He's seen the damage that it's done. And so he says to the church, maybe not particularly susceptible, maybe not even a, a, an imminent threat at the moment. There may not be someone around they can identify with these verses, but he says, Not not because of any of those things, but because he knows what is true, that they are under threat always. He says, Watch out. And he warns them because God hates these things that he speaks of in verse 17 to watch out for it's a work of the flesh so watch out he specifies further all right verse 17 what are we watching out for for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught paul is not against any division he's not against any obstacle right think about division he's totally willing to be be thought of as a fool to the Corinthians for his doctrine. He has no problem dividing from super apostles if that's what's necessary in order to maintain the truth. He's not against any divisions because some divisions are necessary when you're holding to right doctrine. He's against divisions because of doctrines contrary to what they've been taught. In other words, contrary to the right doctrine, contrary to the true gospel, contrary to truth. It's right doctrine that they are to receive, to believe in, to live in light of, not divide over. And notice the problem here. The problem isn't right doctrine and people dividing because of right doctrine. The problem is wrong doctrine. That's what brings the division is. Wrong way of twisting the truth. False gospels, those things bring division. Not right doctrine. Right and true doctrine do not bring it. False doctrine. Twisting of the truth. That's what brings in division. Paul's not against all obstacles. To the Corinthians, he says, I'm totally willing to to be put a stumbling block in front of people. The the stumbling block of Christ crucified, that's the stumbling block he's willing to have. So he's not against all obstacles, but he is against obstacles to the truth. And those who would create those obstacles, in other words, they they make it hard to receive the gospel. They make it hard to receive truth. They, They stir up some sort of resistance to right doctrine and right teaching. Those are obstacles placed in the way. Again, it's not truth or the gospel, or right teaching that caused this problem, they're not any obstacle at all. It's what's contrary to those that caused the obstacles. Amen. He says, watch out for those. He not say watch out for anything. Watch out for those who cause these types of division and who lay these kinds of obstacles in front of you. Now, there's certainly a thread of Eden just kind of weaved through this passage. You hear echoes of it all through this passage, and it's noticeable here. Satan's Eden strategy can be seen in some of the ways that he's describing these people of verse 17. One author summarizes it like this, and I thought this was helpful, so I put it up there. Here's strategy from Satan in Eden. First, he, he raises suspicion regarding God's authority and credibility. You remember the words that he hissed, right? Did God actually say what is he doing but, but casting doubt and shadow upon the very character of God and the word of God? Is this the one who can give you credibility? You're going to listen to him? Is he credible to say these things? Is he the one that really should be the authority? Did he actually say that? Then he adds to what God said. He, he, did he say, You shall not eat any tree? That's not what God said, actually. He added to it. Satan then subtracts from what God has said. He, they said, They responded back to him. He said, but You won't surely die. That's not true. And then he entices by using authentic words without context. Right? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. Well, some of those things are true, right? But they're without context. They're not in the right place. And this is his strategy. He was, what was he trying to do there? He was trying to cause division between God and man. And between man and woman and, and woman and God, if we were going to make all those connections. Like he's trying to cause division. He's laying obstacles into the right doctrine and right truth. It was not the truth of God's word and God's command to them that caused the division. It was the twisting of it. The false teaching that caused the division. The distortion of the truth was what laid the obstacle in front of Adam and Eve. And Paul would have Christians watch out for people who have the serpentine hiss going through their mouth like Satan in the garden. He would have... Us watch out for those who would cause division by throwing doubt upon God's word, by, by twisting the gospel, by adding or subtracting from it. They would, he would have us watch out for those who would raise suspicion of the truth, who would cause us to resist or maybe build up some sort of resistance to the truth, or they in some way make it hard for us to want to receive true and right doctrine. He might be warning us against one who always thinks that it's their job to correct or to inform, or who says, well, actually a lot it might be one who talks a lot when we speak a lot the the scripture is really clear when you talk a lot sin is not lacking it's not far behind or he might be warning against one who's pretty quiet but very carefully and craftily well times his questions that cast doubt and shadow it might be one who seems very kind but who always comes to the conclusion well you know we just can't really know can we And Paul says, watch out, because that serpentine strategy that we saw in the garden, those four things, that strategy continues, and God's people are are always these people who are going to be susceptible to these kinds of strategies. He always says, watch out. We're vulnerable, in a sense, but we're definitely not helpless, right? Paul writes... To these Roman Christians, to these brothers, with the knowledge that these Romans have what they need in order to address these things. Notice who he writes to. He says, I I want to appeal to you brothers, not necessarily a certain class of the church or Christian, but just Christian. I'm appealing to the Christian here that you have knowledge. You, You know what you've been taught. You you have right doctrine. You know the truth. You know the gospel. You understand these things. And so you have what you need in order to watch out the way I've instructed. This doesn't keep them from vulnerability. But he does say like, hey, you're equipped in order to deal with it. You just need to be vigilant and alert to it. Paul entrusts here in verse 17 the saints with the exhortation to watch out because he knows they've also been entrusted with the gospel. They've been entrusted with right doctrine. They've been entrusted with the truth. And when you have God's word, you can rightly watch out. God's word is this word that's sufficient for us. It it is enough. We don't need an extra added strategy in order to put onto the Bible in order to face these kinds of things. It's sufficient. It's clear. Now, not every part of it is as clear as we'd want it to be, but it's sufficiently clear. It's enough for us to understand how to live in this world in a way that's pleasing God. It's our authority, and so we need to sit underneath it, and it's necessary if we to watch out the way Paul wants us to. And this gives us, in God's Word, we have what we need to be discerning, to be constantly vigilant in the midst of our vulnerability. So yeah, we're vulnerable, but we're not helpless in that. Adam and Eve, they'd they'd been taught the right doctrine, the true things. Here's these trees, and God gave them specific instructions, and they still took and ate. And our nature is like theirs, and because that's true, what do we need to do? We need to follow Paul's instructions here and watch out. Now, Adam and Eve sinned. What did it do? It led to death. And it's not just that sin that leads to death. Paul says the wages of sin leads to death. And so he exhorts, watch out, and he adds on to that. That's the other book end of verse 17. Watch out and avoid. Those who are the ones who will cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they've been taught, they are to be avoided. Not argued with, not convinced, not persuaded, don't hear them out. He doesn't even say be patient with them. He says avoid them. Adam and Eve, they they gave a hearing to one like verse 17, and it didn't go well. And Paul would spare the saints of that, and so he says, avoid such people. Because again, it's wrong doctrine that's going to cause division. It's wrong teaching that's going to create obstacles to the truth, that's going to Cause some doubt and difficulty in believing and Paul knows these brothers have what they need to discern that because they have been the renewed their minds by the truth that he has laid down in front of them and so they know how to avoid this they should be the ones who have this impulse to want to live in harmony with one another chapter 12 verse 16 to be peaceful with everyone chapter 12 verse 18 but this is not in opposition to what he says in in chapter 16 verse 17 when he says avoid them. But well, what I think is happening is that there's some assumed attempts here. Paul says to Titus, he says, if, if there's a man who's causing division, you warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing more to do with him, Titus 3.10. I think he's assuming that there's some been attempts for harmony, attempts for peace, and they haven't gone well. He, he's probably assuming, Galatians chapter 6, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, go in a spirit of gentleness and try to correct them. But after the failed attempts... Here's what you do, verse 17, avoid them. And because they're armed with the truth, they can rightly approach this situation. We didn't get to chapter 16 without chapters 1 through 15. And Paul, he wants to have the saints rightly equipped, and so there's chapters 1 through 15... And then he also wants to make sure that they can be rightly released from futile relationships that the people of chapter 16, verse 17 will drag Christians into. And because the context is of causing divisions and creating obstacles to to right doctrine, the avoidance should be in vain of of that context, of those divisions and of those obstacles. So in other words, don't think when he says avoid them, like just Never have any association or don't have any contact with them, although that might be part. Contact likely, though, is not gone. But here's what should be different. Communication with them, if they're around, should be careful, would need to be careful in order to be in line with this command, would need to be intentional, would need to be, have this intent and purpose to be redemptive. In other words, this kind of person, by verse 17 kind of person, is a person you break off casual communication with. You're not just shooting the breeze with them. This is a sharp command. Avoid. You're not just hanging out like your buddies and everything's fine. It's not fine. Watch out for them and avoid them, Paul says. So you're breaking off casual communi- communication. You're not giving them just kind of a normal hearing. Avoid them. And that's sharp because it needs to be sharp. Look at verse 18. Such persons, they, they don't serve our Lord Christ, but, our, but they serve their own appetites. They serve a different master. They they speak, but there's a hiss coming along with it. And that's what the serpent asked of Adam and Eve. Don't serve God. Serve yourself. You don't need his word. Serve yourself. In Paul's description of a verse 17, like this person of verse 17, is one who serves their own appetite, he says. Interesting, again, there's... Maybe the, the echo of Eden, that in Eden, the, Satan is a serpent. What is a serpent? It's a long, I've heard this described, long digestive tract. A belly. It's, it's, that's all it is. It's just like it's a slithering belly. It's full appetite. And when we see snakes, it is so natural to recoil. Because what is that thing? But they don't sound or appear, the people of verse 17, like those who are just one long appetite. Look at what they sound like. It says, they're serving their own appetites, and they do this by smooth talk and flattery, and they deceive the hearts of the naive. In other words, they come and they, they seem nice. They, they speak soft words, kind words. They, they sound really kind, there's smooth talk. In other words, there, there's some eloquence there. The, the sound of their voice, the words they're saying, they, they seem not only pleasant, but plausible. Oh, that totally makes sense. I, I, I could see how you'd get to that place. That's smooth talk. Or flattery. Flattery, the same word for flattery is used in chapter 15, verse 29. Can you guess which one? If you look at 1529, what word it is? It's the word Blessing. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't that get at, at the difficulty here of flattery? And so in other words, like, they're going to come with words, and these words might seem gentle and lowly. They're not going to come out as harsh and mighty. They're going to seem like blessing. They're going to seem like they're, they're bringing such good. But here's what he says, that they're actually targeting something. They're wanting to feed their own appetite. And, and to do that, they'll go after the vulnerable, naive... Naive, that is, innocent or unsuspecting. The ones who don't heed the warning of verse 17. To watch out and to avoid. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Pilgrim, Christian, and hopeful are are walking along the path. And as they're walking, another path joins in the way that they're going. And the description is that a dark man with a very light robe walks up. And he asks them, are you going to the celestial city? They say, yeah, we're going there. And he says, well, follow me. It's the same way I'm going. And listen to this description from Bunyan. So the two pilgrims, they followed him in the new way which had joined the road. A little at a time, it curved until it veered away from the celestial city. And in a little time, their faces were completely turned away from it. And yet they followed him. But by and by, before they were aware of the man's deception, he led them both into a net. This man... In the story, his name is Flatterer. He's the Flatterer. It's interesting if you think about the story, he's hardly a prominent character. John Bunyan will spend pages and descriptions on Apollyon and other nemesis that they face along the way. And Flatterer just kind of comes and goes and he's barely there at all. And that's, I think, part of the nature of flattery. You almost don't even notice it. It's hardly prominent. He's just a subtle character. He comes in and notice the description. Bunyan does this so well. He's like dark on the inside, but very light robe. It doesn't seem like he's this scary creature when he walks up. But what happens in the end? He leads them right to planet. the flatterer is one who claims to have the same goal. He's even, he looks and has this appearance and sound of being very light. But he gives a little veering into their path. And pretty soon that veering turns them completely away. And then quickly they're in the nets. I, I think that, that Bunyan's pace in this part of the story is suggestive. You notice how quickly we went from we're on the way to the celestial city to we're in a net. It just happens in like two sentences. Not much happens real quick in that progress to the celestial city. This happens very fast. And I think this gets at the complexity and how important the exhortations are verse 17 to watch out and avoid. And so how do we do this? How do we we identify one who is the one who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the sound doctrine? How do we avoid them? We just need to recognize there's an an added complexity with all the digital voices that are around in this story that we're putting in our ears and we have no awareness likely of, of where they come from, who they are at all. I think there might be a touch of of warning in that to say, like, I think it's helpful often to be around people you can look in the eye and know a little bit of the substance of their life, who knows where they're coming from, if they're flattering or not. But there's a further need, I think, in that age to know something of the people we're listening to and some of the people around. Again, like the importance and emphasis on actual community. People's faces that you can look around and see is needed here. But even if that's true, the complexity of this is not erased. Paul characterizes a little bit further in order to help us, but we have to think about this carefully. He says in verse 18, here's the characterization of them. They're they're not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and they're using, here are the means, they're using smooth talk and flattery. And so he characterizes them, and he says that, well, they're not openly serving Christ. Despite the appearance. They might have the appearance of being after the glory and renown of Christ. But they're not serving that. And so we need to keep looking and asking. Like, what's the goal here? What are they after? What, what really lights them up and brings them joy? What really angers them? Is it, have, is it tied to the, the exaltation and glory and renown of Christ or not? And, and that might help us. But we need to look at both goals that they're after and means. Both of those are important. We tend to navigate toward one or the other and think the other one doesn't matter. And actually, both matter in the Scripture, right? The, the goal matters and the means we use to get there matter. And there's no, the, the end justifies the means. No, it doesn't. We're to be holy. And so here's what they're doing. They're not exalting Christ, but they're exalting what? Themselves. Maybe they want to look smart. Maybe they want to look gifted. Maybe they want to gain a following. There's a million ways they could be after exalting themselves. So look out for those kinds of things. They, they might claim to be those who have some sort of unique gifting, And so they're kind of above certain things that you might think are normal for others. And it seems totally understandable in the moment. Or more subtly, they might use their gift without the reception of others' gifts. In other words, their gift of teaching, their gift of wisdom, their gift of discernment, or whatever the gifting is, might be a gift that's like kind of stands above the other gifts. Yeah, but I'm gifted with wisdom. Yeah, but I'm gifted with teaching. And so what you're teaching couldn't be helpful in this scenario. I mean, there's things like that all the time. They're probably not willing, or at least willing for long, to decrease in order that others might increase. Kind of the way John the Baptist is like, I'm willing to die if that man might be exalted. That's fine with me. The godly do that. Shepherds ought to do that. Say, hey, I'll die. That's fine as long as the sheep go free. Godly people do that. They lay down their lives for the good of others. Godly men, that's what you do with wives, right? You lay down your life, you sacrificial love, in order that she might be washed. If I go down for her to be washed, that's great. That's what Christ did for me. That's the pattern I'm following. We're supposed to love as Christ loved the church. That's what godly people do. But the person of verse 17, likely, they might follow along with going down a little bit in, in people's eyes in order to take some other people up, but not long. They're going to need to ascend too. They're not trying to win others to the truth because they're out for themselves. They're trying to win them to a spin of the truth or their own opinion. And we can know the difference. Man, we've been given the book of Romans. What a mercy. We, we can know the difference when they're trying to put a spin and distort it. Paul entrusts this to brothers, right? He, he knows normal, everyday Christian at Rome. You can know the difference. You've been given right doctrine. You've been given right teaching. These kind of people are the people that probably like to perplex others, not edify them. Make them ask a lot of questions but not really fill them up. I like to speak on curiosities that they have but only maybe dip their toe in the water of what's really clear and declared over and over again in Scripture. Paul talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We give this open statement to the truth. They're not into that. I like how one author, he he wrote this little book, excellent little book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. What a great title. He says of ones that fit kind of the description of verse 17, that they easily pass over the great and weighty things, both of law and gospel, and stand most upon those things that are the least importance and concern to the souls of men. Majoring in the minors, we could say say it that way. Oh, that's Great and clear and weighty, but we need to talk about this thing. This minor detail that I want all of you to hear about all the time. Watch out. Avoid them. Probably in their wake, they're leaving strife. Like all behind them is just drama, suspicion, doubt, questions. They have no problem doing that in order to achieve their end because, again, they're not serving. Our Lord Christ, they're serving their own appetites. But their speech is smooth. It sounds pleasant and plausible. It it might look like being nice in some of those lesser things, lesser importance, and completely negligent of the greater things. It might look like that. Or it might sound really flattering in order to gain a hearing. They might even hear some of your deepest, darkest things that are going on and sound really kind and understanding in the midst of that. But will they give you a Band-Aid in the middle of your wounds or will they take out the scalpel and carefully and kindly help you remove what's actually there? You see, the the true friend, the wise person in Proverbs is the one who's willing to wound in order to heal. The one who's just going to slap a Band-Aid on it and move on is not wise more likely to fit into the category of verse 17 than not. Now again, none of this makes it simple, but also it tells us that it's not impossible. We need to listen well. Watch well. We need to listen together. Like we are people who belong to one another and we need to listen to one another. That doesn't mean like one person has, like I have to listen to this before I make a decision. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're going to need one another on this journey to figure this out. Paul wrote this to brothers here. We need family. We need one another. We're going to need some other gifts in the middle of this. We should be listening and receiving them regularly so that when we're trying to discern things on our own, we're equipped more fully because we've been built up into the head that is Christ by all these other gifts that Christ gave to us to be built up. And so we're going to need one another. And so we watch out together, and then we will avoid together if necessary. Now, when Paul writes this, he doesn't seem to lack confidence in these brothers that, that they're going to be able to, like... Fulfill what he's exhorting them to fulfill. He doesn't seem to lack that confidence. Like, oh man, I'm telling them to watch out and avoid, but they're never going to be able to figure this out. I don't think that's true at all. He he gives exhortations, and then he moves right into a few encouragements. So we have a few exhortations and then a few encouragements. Look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Their obedience is known. And Paul rejoices in it. O- obedience perhaps their obedience being known is what maybe paul is, is thinking about when he thinks like man they better watch out their faith in chapter one their faith was was told throughout the world and they better watch out they're specifically probably in the target their obedience is known they're, they might be targeted by the enemy by these folks of verse 17 because they hear of something going on in rome but they're also the target get this of of god's encouragements through paul He says, your obedience is is known. He looks on him from the outside, guys, oh man, you're doing it. I'm so proud of you. It makes me rejoice when I think of your obedience and what you're doing. You're, You're doing this very thing. And the obedience that Paul rejoices in is the obedience of faith. In chapter one, verse five, he's like, I'm writing to bring him. The obedience of faith. That's the kind of obedience he's talking about. The obedience that looks at who God is and what God has done and what that means for us and just starts living life in line of it. Like it's a response to all that God is and then all that God has done. You start living life in obedience to him because you trust him. It's that kind of obedience that Paul says, that's the kind of obedience I rejoice in. And it's evident in your lives. And in his joy, he encourages them. Hey, keep going in this obedience. And here's how you can keep going in the midst of a world where you're going to be under constant threat of the people from verse 17. Here's how you do it: be innocent as to what is evil, or be innocent, be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. Flip them around there. One, uh, one author said this. Put it this way: just kind of re-wrote. It's his translation, the Phillips translation. He said, "I want you to to be experts in good." and not even beginners in evil. Yeah, I want to see you. There's a typo there. I saw it in my paper too. I want you to be experts in good, and not even beginners in evil. And what this does here, what he he is paraphrasing that there, actually draws out the contrast really well. The contrast between good and evil. The, The contrast between being wise and innocent, or what he would say, expert and beginner. Paul wants wisdom from these believers. He wants purity from these believers. He does not want ignorance. That's not what he is commending here. Be completely ignorant. No, that's not what he's commending at all. He wants them to be wise. I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, or 21 and 22 say it well. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from what's evil. That, that, That gets at it right there. That's verse 19b in 1 Thessalonians 4. He doesn't desire ignorance of evil that would be opposite of what he said in verse 17 right he says watch out in other words you're not ignorant to what's going on here pay attention be careful there's a warning there and so he doesn't want them to be ignorant of evil but he does want them to learn to have no part in it and just to have no part in it to not want to have a part in it so that they want to completely avoid it he wants them to keep walking in the obedience of faith. And, and to do that, they don't need a deep dive into evil. That's not necessary. They need the deep dive into what is good and true and right. Amen. I'm, I'm kind of astounded sometimes. Uh, I see it with my wife, but I'm astounded. And moms in general, they know their baby's cries, right? And I'm astounded that they, they know cries that they've never even heard from their child. They kind of know what it means. It's, it does not come naturally to me. I don't know if that's... That's probably just me. doesn't come naturally to me. Like, even if they've never heard, a young baby, like, they've never heard the I'm hurt cry, when that cry goes out, I guarantee you, like, the moms know, like, that's a different cry, that's hurt, even if they've never heard that cry before. Why? Because they've heard all the normal cries. That's the I'm sad cry, or I'm hungry cry, or whatever, but that's not the I'm hurt cry. When you hear the I'm hurt cry, I've never heard that before, but something's wrong. And I think Paul wants that kind of thing grown up in Believers. To, to know evil, not because you, you've taken a deep dive into it and you've studied it and you know everything about not because of that, but because you've taken a deep dive into all that's good and true and right so that you have studied that so well that when something else comes up, you're like, something's wrong. Something's not right here. You, your radar comes up and like, something's off. And that's what Paul wants when he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And we haven't gotten again to this place in chapter 16, verse 19, apart from 15 chapters that he's already written. And what has he done in those 15 chapters? Paul has taken us all, praise God, to the depths of all that is good and right and perfect, right? Here's the glorious gospel. You can be right in the sight of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, if you're in Christ, you're his forever and he's gonna take you to the end. Oh yeah, he's the sovereign one and he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and he'll have, he'll have uh, uh, judgment on whom he'll have judgment. Like this is the one that we've been taking the depths into knowing his goodness and his work and what it means for us. He's taken us there. And so now when he comes here and he says, well, you need to be innocent of what is evil, he doesn't need to go further into that. He's already taken us into what is good. He's like, you're going to be able to be wise in this thing. And so now we don't have to go into the depths of what is evil because we know how to spot it next to what has been good And he's given us in Romans. And so Paul here, be, be, be wise as to what's good and be innocent as to what is evil, he doesn't give us a tip or trick to figure that out. Does he? No. He's just encouraging us to hold fast to it. Remember it. Love what is true and right and good. And again, when we get to the end of verse 19, we haven't eliminated all the complexities of navigating, trying to figure out who we're sort of watch out for and avoid. But he encourages them, and then he puts before them a few expectations that they should have still in the midst of this. Yeah, you're under threat. Here's some encouragements. Keep obeying. Careful what's evil. And here's a few expectations that you need to have in front of you all along the way. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So much theology that was poured into 15 chapters to this point is expressed so graphically here in this one verse. Think of this the God of peace. The the God who would take those who are enemies because of their sin and rebellion against him and make them his children. He would make them at peace with him through his son. That's the God of peace how does he make peace with, with sinners? It's peace through propitiation. It's, it's peace through a sacrifice. It's peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, he has to come and he has to be sacrificed and, and to give his life as a sacrifice. In other words, to turn away the wrath of God that's upon and rightly upon sinners. And he comes and is that propitiation. And it's through that son, through Jesus Christ, that this God to these brothers and to anyone who trusts in Christ can be a God of peace. Peace is made through propitiation. And so, in other words, when we come to verse 20, peace is not opposed to crushing. That doesn't sound we're like the God of peace is going to crush something. It's a little strange to like, put those together in the same sentence, and yet, if we've been reading Romans, we're like, wait a second. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened to him? Well, he was crushed. And it's only through him that I can have peace with God, and there was crushing there. And so it doesn't come as so, such an alarm when he says, well, the God of peace is going to crush something under your feet makes a little more sense. And that's good news because crushing needs to happen. There is one who is still active, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's an expert at causing division and laying obstacles. He's the father of lies and he's active. And this father of lies is using uh, all kinds of means some people's own tongues and his, those in his charge, to sow lies and division and discord and problems everywhere he can. And to do nothing in the light of that wickedness and evil is injustice. And to do nothing in light of that is to be okay with those divisions, okay with those lies. But the God of peace is not And the God of peace will soon crush that one. And we need crushing to happen. And the crushing ultimately and finally and fully will be swift and final in the end. But notice where he says this crushing is going to happen. Not so much a location. But he says the God of peace will soon, it's coming, crush Satan under Your feet. Peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through our faith in Christ can we know not enmity and animosity and rebellion against God, but now we can know friendship and adoption with God. And by faith in Jesus, Paul has taught us that if you trust in Jesus, you are united to him. You you have been united to Christ. So much so that what's his becomes yours. His death is your death. You've been judged. You've been crucified. His resurrection is your resurrection. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. So we're joined with him, and all that's his is now ours. And what also is his? The the defeat and victory over the enemy. And God so identifies believers, those who have trusted in Christ, with his son that he's already said that you're going to be co-heirs with him in chapter 8 and you're already more than conquerors also in chapter 8 because we can't leave chapter 8 before we finish Romans again. You're so identified with that Christ that you're heirs and conquerors and you're so identified with him that Satan is going to be crushed under your feet. Paul, in verse 20, he takes readers back to Eden again, doesn't he? In, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, here's the kind of the first pronouncement of the gospel. He's saying this to the serpent, but here's God's word. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Paul is saying, yeah, that's happened. The seed of the woman came, and he he laid down the blow, and it bruised him. Killed him. And that wasn't the end of the story, obviously, right? He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And because that's true, and because Paul says your faith in him so unites you to him that you're with him, that now we're united with the bruised one. That we've been bruised in him, not just so that we might be bruised, but we also might share in the bruising that he's going to lay down finally and fully one day. Because Jesus was crushed, those in him have been crushed. And because he was crushed and came out the other side, those in him will come out the other side and do some bruising too. And notice what he says here again, every word dripping with theology. God will do this. There's an expectation for them, puts it in front of them. God will soon do this. It's going to happen. It's an expectation that Christians are to have. And it's sturdy because it's not them who's doing it. God will do it. Paul doesn't say, Christians, you know what? Go and crush it. That's what we say these days, like, you're crushing it. He doesn't never give that to Christians, right? You're crushing it. He He encourages them, but he doesn't say that. He wants them to go do some really faithful and holy things, but he didn't say, go crush it. But God will. God will soon crush Satan. That's better news than go crush it. Christian, you might be in chapter 7, verse 24 still, where Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. You might still be there. You might feel the the civil war in your soul so strongly right now in certain places where you feel like, how in the world could I be delivered from this? Or you might be in chapter 8, verse 37, where he says, you're more than conquerors, and you're like, yes, riding high. More than a conqueror right now on Sunday morning. You could be anywhere in between that. But in Christ, this is true. We do not live in order to get this crushing to happen and for God to include us in it. We live with the promise and the expectation that God will do this and we're included in on it. This is a sturdy expectation, not wishful thinking. And this expectation is an expectation and a promise that can get us all the way home. So whether you're stuck in chapter 7 verse 24 thinking wretched man that I am, you can know that God's going to soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a promise going to get you all the way there. So as we go along our way living out life trying to be faithful, Though God doesn't give us a how-to manual, how to crush the serpent's head, he's already given us his son who laid down the blow that was necessary in order for us to join him triumphantly. And and here's what he says of this son who lived and died and rose. Follow him, believe in him, trust in him. And he doesn't give us, here's the technique you're going to need to use as you go out crushing the serpent. Because he doesn't want us to know the technique. Here's what he gives us. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be with you always. And Paul ends the same way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's not like, I hope it is. It, it is. There's the expectation for you. As you go about doing the things that God has told you to go about doing, you're doing it from victory and you're doing it with the presence of the victor. And because the one we follow was bruised and rose... We can trust and have confidence that whatever threats come after us, and whatever one tries to cause division or throw obstacles in our way, that we're going to get to verse 21 day, where the God of peace is going to crush Satan under our feet. Church, believer, Christian, we should be so sure of this that we share in the victory even now. We do it in song, we do it indeed. Right? Together we come and we say, if you've trusted in Christ, that we're in Christ, and that one day victory is ours, finally and fully, right now it has been given to us in Him. And we take a meal of victory in the midst of the battle. Notice that the threats haven't stopped as we met today. And as we take the Lord's Supper, the threats are not stopping. And yet in the middle of all of those threats, the Lord would have His people say, Christ came. He lived, he died, he rose. We're looking forward to him coming again. And because that's true, right now, we're fine. We have all we need in him. And so if all your trust is in Christ, this is the meal of victory that you're commanded to take to remember what he's done and to remember he's coming to finally and fully crush Satan under your feet. If you're not in Christ... Or maybe you're perhaps like, man, it sounds like verse 17 and 18 might be describing me. Here's what Paul would say. Here's what scripture would say. Here's what we would admonish. Don't take this meal. Be reconciled to God. Repent of sin. Trust in Jesus. His blood is enough for the, the, the vilest that we saying? For the, the person of verse 17 to come running to him, he doesn't push him away. He, he welcomes them with an embrace. So repent and trust in Christ. And if you don't know what that means, like find another believer. Find a brother, a sister, and and ask them, what does it mean to follow Christ? But if you're in Christ, this is the meal of victory for you in the midst of the battle. Let's share it together. Would you pray with me?
1: God, as I hear your word today, proclaimed. I experience fear and also great hope together in the same passage. And I fear the enemy because he is real. And I know that you're stronger than him. I know what his end will surely be. I know all of that is true. But right now, this very day, Your enemy, Satan, is our enemy, and I believe we do have a target on our back as a church, not because we're awesome or because we're super Christians, but just simply because we preach your word faithfully, and we hold one another accountable to it, and we try to believe Everything that your word says and do everything that your word says, including, like we just heard at the end, making disciples of all of the nations. And there's nothing the enemy hates more than that. Disciples of Jesus Christ, making more disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, simply by the nature of being a real New Testament church, God, we know your enemy hates us. And is not going to come at us in big, obvious, stupid ways with ridiculous gospels that probably no one in here would believe. He's going to be more subtle than that. And he's going to come at us through one another and through doubts and critical hearts. And I pray that you would grant us unity by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. I pray that we would have humble hearts who receive your word. I pray that we would obey your commands about how to treat one another. That when we have ought with one another, when we've sinned against one another, God, I pray that we would deal with that right away and not let things build up and turn into a problem because it can and it has. The enemy has attacked this church before and caused harm. And we want him to get no foothold in this place, God. So we'll unit our hearts together in unity according to your truth. And I pray that we would keep wolves away from this flock. And I pray that no wolfishness would rise up in our own hearts, God. Give us a deep love for one another and uh, help us to to love and hold up our, our pastors and submit to their authority and do everything that we can to serve one another with all of our gifts. You've gifted us all with spiritual gifts. We need to serve one another, God. Protect us from lies and deception and flattery that can even land on our own tongues, Lord. And we also today are filled with hope because we know that the end for your enemy is destruction and the dragon will be cast into the lake of fire And we will reign with you forever. We can't wait until that day. Thank you, Jesus, for being crushed for our iniquities and for our sins. And we remember that today as we take this supper. We remember the great cost that you paid to make us your kids and to conquer Satan. Thank you so much for doing the work that we could not do, Lord. Let us be faithful. Let us live lives worthy of this good news according to what you've done for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.